This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. I'm releasing two episodes back-to-back today because, frankly, this would have ended up well over an hour on one episode, which, for better or for worse, isn't the format I'm going for on this podcast. So please approach the episodes 86 and 87 as a continuation because, essentially, they began as one. In addition, I am also releasing a members-only episode on Patreon along with these as well, which will cover what's being hinted at on the main podcast with regards to the County of Flanders. So today, I work up the guts to finally move on from this terrible episode in English history, a period of time that, as you've seen on social media for the last several weeks, I've really struggled to not only understand, but also to to narrate as well. At some point, we just have to hope we've explained ourselves the best we can, given the circumstances and the information we have available to us. So, on to the proverbial straw laid upon the camel's back. It's high time we get on with it. Cancel your engagements for the rest of the day, kick up your feet, get the tissues ready, and have your better health therapist, which I am in no way affiliated with, yet... On speed dial. These two episodes of the podcast, well, they're not exactly the easiest to listen to. Today's episode, episode 86, is entitled The Harrying of the North. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. York lay in ruins in October of 1069. This once dominant city in the north was now cast aside and the next major center of trade and commerce connecting the wealthier and more prosperous south to Northumbria was a further 90 miles north in Durham. Durham was also 90 miles closer to the Scottish border, which certainly didn't play into William's favor in terms of controlling his rebellious northern subjects. So in order for William to maintain control, York's resurgence must be swift and it must result in a bigger and more prosperous city than it was just a month earlier. And William shouted orders, literally and metaphorically, from the saddle of his horse for the city's walls to be refortified and expanded, the citadel near the city center, the one once held by Richard Fitzrichard and then Yorkshire Sheriff Willem Mallet, though now under the direct supervision of William Fitzosborne, the king's longtime friend and confidant, to be rebuilt. And even a second castle altogether, also under the supervision of William Fitzosborne, to be hastily constructed. King William garrisoned more men than normal in these castles and along the city walls, and though the people of York were allowed to come and go in order to keep goods and services flowing in and out of the city, thus continuing the flow of money, in and out of the city, they weren't exactly left alone. Reports come from York at this time about the soldiers stationed there, frustrating regular folks' efforts to just move on and rebuild with displays of harassment and outright theft. It wasn't easy for the residents of York, and those of Yorkshire at large, but if the English have shown anything throughout the 11th century is that they were hardy and they embraced an unparalleled ability to, well... Just get on with it. It's as if they'd seen it all already. 
Folks from York, since the beginning of the century, some 69 years before, had endured countless atrocities, invasions, and would-be usurpers. Family blood feuds were debilitating and horrific acts of deeply ingrained wanton criminality, maybe somewhat jokingly explained in the comparison of blood feuds were to Northumbria as baseball is to America, you know? You know, America's national pastime, that is. But to add to the culture of generational retribution, these folks have seen about enough so far. From Ethelred II to Swain Forkbeard to Edmund Ironside to Canute the Great, they weathered it all fairly well, all things considered. But then came a Mercian bastard, and then his alcoholic bull-in-a-china shop, Norman Danish half-brother who, remember, secretly okayed a treachery beyond the pale, resulting in the assassination of a popular Earl of Bamborough, an attack essentially on them all. They were able to regroup and prosper under Edward, but were nearly drawn into a civil war in the South. But, to add to the culture of generational retribution, blood feuds, which never exactly stopped during any of this time, came news of some Wessex dandy boy, who called himself Harold II, becoming king upon Edward's death, though Northumbrians weren't exactly represented in the Witton at the time of Harold's election. This same blonde pretty boy came to bail them out after their earl failed to protect them at Fulford against their former earl, who teamed up with that living legend, Hardrada, who was making a play of his own on the crown of England. Shortly after Stamford Bridge, they heard word that the same king failed to protect England way down on the southern coast, resulting in some rando Frenchy destroying Sussex and through to London, only to bully young Edgar Etheling in relinquishing the crown. Throw in various raids and pitched battles against those wild Scotsmen north of the Hadrian's Wall, and periodic upticks even, and coastal raids by those damned Danish and Norse sea wolves, and it's been one hell of a century so far for Northumbria. These Northumbrians, like the rest of the island's residents, there's something, that's for sure. You know, I, I harp on things like this because, I don't know, I think it's easy to judge these folks from our collective past by their worst. Things like slavery, oppression of foreigners and minority populations, and women their near-constant affinity to make war. I mean, I get it, but if we were to be judged by our worsts, well, that'd be a, just a bit unfair, wouldn't it? When I look at folks like the English, the Irish, Arabs across Northern Africa and the Middle East, the Russian people, Germans, every single culture in history, I just try to remember that we wouldn't be here without them. And as I've said before, we are who we are, because they were who they were. That's just an inescapable truth. And I appreciate, sometimes begrudgingly, I appreciate them. Now, these Northumbrians, these, these English specifically in this thread of the podcast, hits a little closer to home for me personally, as, again, I've said before, my heritage pretty overwhelmingly comes from the Liverpool to Manchester area. It's about equal parts English, Irish, and Scandinavian, to be honest. Sure, blood feuds, not a great look here in the 21st century, admittedly, but when I also study the way they pulled themselves back together after events like September 19th, 1069, 
you know, when York was set ablaze and the subsequent skirmishes further destroyed the land in and around the city between the rebels and the Norman occupiers, well, these folks still put one foot in front of the other and they began rebuilding. You see this time and time again all over the world. I don't know. I appreciate that sort of attitude. And to be clear, this wasn't just the folks from Yorkshire, again, who had this attitude. Only the English, in fact. But we're talking about York here, so that's what I'm zoning in on. Now, with York recovering and its people doing what they do best, picking up the pieces left over after the elites of the world decide to bicker with one another, uh, the age-old obstacle of free people everywhere, am I right? And with King William traipsing back and forth from one side of his kingdom to the other, plugging the holes in the dam that keeps popping, it seemed as if, finally, this Norman king had his back against the ropes. And despite the colossal disappointment of King Swain II Estrasen not accompanying his rather large fleet of Danish Vikings, folks might have been thinking that this was it. At long last, King William I would be relegated back to simply Duke William the Bastard of Normandy. Just a, just a blip on the English historical radar. A nightmare from which they have emerged. As it is, we pick it up way out west near the border of Wales in late September of 1069. In Shrewsbury, which was currently on fire. How and why, you might ask? Well, it started with some raids, some of those Fabian tactics we talked about before, led by Edric the Wild and his English and Welsh Civitici against Mott and Bailey castles around Shropshire in order to not only collect resources and reduce Norman numbers, but also to test Norman defenses. The king initially sent William Fitzosborne, along with the loyal Breton Count Brian, to handle things in the west. But... As William hunted Danish and English warriors who had holed themselves up in the marshes of Lincolnshire in a place called the Isle of Axholm, reports from his friend out west came with some bad news. Though Count Brian saw to some success in the southwest near Exeter and into Devonshire, defeating and repelling the invading Godwinson boys and their Irish allies, do you remember this? Well, Edric the Wild was proving to be far more difficult to suppress in and around Shropshire and Herefordshire. William Fitzosborne and Count Brian were ordered back to Yorkshire, and William made his way out west, that is, King William, to handle things himself. I imagine them, you know, high-fiving each other as they passed, because with all the travel William and his people were doing it, it kind of just feels appropriate. Everything they had to say had been said before, no doubt, so a high five is probably all that was needed. So a little shuffling happened, and this is technically when William Fitzosborne takes over operations in York and immediately found himself fighting against the joint Anglo-Danish forces as they tested York further. William's half-brother, Robert, and Count Brian take over operations that King William was just at in Lincolnshire, pinning down the Anglo-Danish fleet. And King William is now out west, arriving in the area of Staffordshire in late September, again, as Shrewsbury lay in charred ruins. Not too much is known in this moment, except that William was able to land a serious blow to Edric's forces just outside the town of Stafford itself in a series of skirmishes and battles, though not to Edric himself. 
Had Edric died or been captured, William would surely have maintained an an almost everlasting hold on the Welsh Marchlands, but alas, that would not be the case here. As long as Edric was alive and well, William would have to keep a question mark above his lands in the western Midlands. Orderic Vitalis would write the following of these events, though, quote, In all of these battles, much blood had flowed on both sides, and combatant and non-combatant alike were reduced to great wretchedness by the disturbances. Massacres of wretched people increased, souls were imperiled by the sins of envy and anger, and swept away to hell in their thousands. End quote. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about to get a little heavy around here. In October of 1069, William had handled for the time being the very serious threat of Edric the Wild, but the cost of such campaigning was just really high. And when he felt comfortable enough with his victories over the Western rebels, he heard word that his half-brother Robert and Count Brian had let the Danes escape, presumably back north to the city of York itself. They, that is the Danish, would require better arrangements if they were to weather the winter in England, far from the warmths of their homes and the lines of their resources. As Mark Morris tells us in his book, The Norman Conquest, William begrudgingly turned his army east and north, returning to where he'd left Robert. They joined in mid-November, as the weather was certainly turning for the worse. Together, under William's rule, they pushed north toward York to relieve William Fitzosborne as reports came in that York was under near-constant small-scale attack. William's temper must have been raging at this point. How long will all of this continue? His temper had gone from exasperation to rage to explosive fits and back to simple rage again, but he remained a dangerous enemy to, the, to both the English rebel as well as the Danish Viking. As William approached the River Air some 30 miles south of York, where a bridge had seemingly always been for people to pass from Lincolnshire to Yorkshire, he found the bridge completely dismantled, gone. He sent scouts to see if he'd just miscalculated his path, but no, they reported that there were no bridges for miles to the east and miles to the west. This, no doubt, must have sent William over the edge. The word rage was no longer appropriate. It was clear the bridge was intentionally ripped apart as the Anglo-Danish force crossed the river. A brilliant move, actually, to buy just a little bit of time to escape, but William couldn't be sure that the moment he let his guard down and order his men to build a new bridge, that his enemies wouldn't spring from the opposite tree line and massacre them. So he forced overland travel along the banks of the River Air until they found another bridge, which, well, set them back at least two weeks. It wasn't until early December that York was in sight of William and his men. However, as they approached, they heard word that the Danes and the English had once again abandoned their efforts in York and moved northward. All of that traveling over Yorkshire's difficult to navigate, especially on horseback, southern lands, for what? As Morris puts it, quote, By this point, it must have been amply clear that, despite the persistent rumors, the Danes had absolutely no intention of meeting William in battle. At the same time, they seemed in no hurry to leave England either. So what were they up to? End quote. Now that's a great question. 
Either way, William's ire was peaking. Morris writes, quote, William had been fighting a desperate campaign, dragged here and there across the country in pursuit of his enemies and still unable to defeat them, end quote. To be sure, this was not a feeling William was familiar with. William conquered. That's what conquerors do. They conquer. And William? He was a conqueror. <laughs> Within York, William immediately sought to reestablish his control over the city and make it once again the Norman stronghold of the north, a testament to William's far-reaching influence. Rebuilding the main castle was almost complete, as was the construction of the second castle. I told you these things flew up in, in just a mind-bogglingly short amount of time. York was once again firmly now in William's control. William Fitzosborne served admirably while he waited on his king to arrive, but William laid down a hammer of authority when he arrived. York was on lockdown for the foreseeable future. With York taken and removed from the equation, William set his sights on his enemies who fled north. Now it was time to send a clear message, clearer than the clear messages he'd thought he'd already sent to these independent northern subjects. He dispatched wave after wave of riders and foot soldiers to move swiftly throughout southern Yorkshire on, on a campaign of terror among the residents, whether they had anything to do with the rebellion or not. Southern Yorkshire burned. William, in the meantime, approached the Danes and did what every good English king of the last 70 years had done to rid themselves of their Viking infestation. The mighty King William I of England bought them off in exchange for them leaving the island forever. Of course, the word forever is always in quotation marks when you're talking about Scandinavians. Chronicler John of Worcester wrote that Asbjorn was secretly, or excuse me, quote, secretly promised a large sum of money and permission for his army to forage freely along the coasts on condition that he would leave without fighting at the end of the winter, end quote. Now, this calls into question the real intentions of King Swain II, Esterson, about his invasion of England. Was it really to take control of the kingdom? A kingdom that he probably had more of a legitimate claim to than its current king did? Or was it just another hollow Danish attempt to reap the rewards of English blood, sweat, and tears? Now, William's Danish problem, as far as he saw it at that time, was handled by early December. Done. Chalk it up to another brilliant defeat of the forces of evil bent on overturning him and his rule in England. William was free to handle, well, everything else in the kingdom now. And it is worth really emphasizing this next point. William was pissed. Sure, he was angry about his subjects continuing to push against his rule, but something came out of his conversations with the Danes. Well, see, it seemed like Edgar Etheling had played a role in the Danish arrival in the first place. Yeah, it looks like Edgar Etheling had secured financial and military support from his benefactor, King Malcolm III of Scotland, that is, Malcolm Canmore, who had once upon a time defeated the mighty King Macbeth so many years before. So not only were these Northumbrians a problem, but it seems the Scots were now also against his rule in England, uh, to some extent. So I say again emphatically, William was pissed. 
William had let that little upstart punk of a, off scot-free, pun not necessarily intended, after the young King elect seated his crown against, or excuse me, to William outside of London way back in November of 1066. Three years, that is, and one month earlier. Honestly, William thought this kid had serious guts to come in person, so I mean, the kid kind of earned his next breath on that, on that act alone. After being, you know, a quote-unquote honored guest of William's back and forthing between Normandy and England, you know, for the better part of a year after that, Edgar had managed to sneak away to Scotland, keeping a real threat to his reign in England alive and well. So, with Scotland behind the recent events around Durham and Yorkshire over the last year or so, as well as the Danish invasion itself, from Stafford to Exeter to Lincolnshire to Durham, his kingdom had risen up against him. There, already at the head of a large assembly of soldiers near York, William had simply... (laughs) I feel like I say this all the time, but he had really had enough this time. This was the state of England by the end of 1069, a year, as I've said, that put William to the test like never before. William reevaluated his circumstances in York as he settled in. He'd left his men in the city two or three times already to hold the region and expand Norman influence. To what end? Each time he left, his garrisons in York lost their grips on the city. What could William expect would happen next time if he chose to leave? What's the definition of insanity again? William was a lot of things. A warrior, a tyrant, a bully. But one thing I'm sure he absolutely was not was insane. He was, as far as warriors and kings went, he was pretty smart. York was simply a problem that couldn't be so easily figured out. Not yet, anyway. As southern Yorkshire continued to be ravaged by Normans with no real limit to their horrifying behavior, William did two things as 1069 came to a full close. He doubled the efforts to rebuild York beyond what was mentioned earlier in the, in the episode, and he radiated his efforts of terrorizing the population into submission outward in all directions from the city center. But the York problem came into clearer and clearer focus the more he thought about it. Maybe setting garrisons and building castles and Mott and Bailey fortifications worked nicely elsewhere around his duchy and even parts of his kingdom. But William was quickly learning what every Anglo-Saxon king had known quite well for centuries. These Anglo-Norse and Anglo-Danish northerners were just not like the rest of England. It's kind of that simple. William, being a hammer by nature, reached the point where Northumbria specifically, in its entirety, was one giant nail. Immediately after the new year, in 1070, with southern Yorkshire a wasteland of charred fields and villages, William reorganized his army, arranging them into smaller units. These small bands were designed to be fast-moving and horribly lethal, as well as able to traverse the rough northern terrain to flush out any pockets of, as they call them out in the Welsh borderlands, wild men, who might be hiding and biding their time for warmer weather. Orderic Vitalis describes the scene as horrific to say the least. Other chroniclers would echo this assessment almost down the line, except for, you know, William of Poitiers, William's biggest fanboy. William ordered these small bands of Normans and mercenaries to fan out, 
across a stretch of around 100 miles, moving northward away from York. Or Derek writes, quote, In his anger, he commanded that all crops and herds, chattels and food of every kind should be brought together and burned to ashes with consuming fire, so that the whole region north of the Humber might be stripped of all means of sustenance. End quote. Now, I remember first coming across the term scorched earth policy way back in my 10th grade year in U.S. history class. Studying the American Civil War, we heard of a prolonged war effort, already four years beyond its initial two or three month expected duration. The Union was having serious fits as the invading force, as the idea of home field, ad home field advantage was and is a very real thing in war. The Confederate States of America, or Confederacy, were holding off the far superior northern economic and military machine, quite simply because of its home field advantage. In much the same way, William was leading the far superior economic and military force in England at the time without question. Yet these Northumbrians just wouldn't give up their grand delusions of self-rule. And in much the same way that General Ulysses S. Grant ordered his right-hand man, William Tecumseh Sherman, to lead a massive 60-mile-wide march from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia, before turning north and continuing his march into the Carolinas, laying waste to anything and anyone in his way. Well, just like that, William, too, ordered his men to stretch out and do the same from York to Durham. There were certainly parallels between King William's actions in Northumbria in the winter of 1069 to 1070 and what became known later as Sherman's march to the sea during the American Civil War, though I'd be cautious in saying they were one-to-one -one comparisons. Oddly, though, they both began with a once great city being torched to smolders and ashes by those in charge of it. So that's interesting in ways I haven't quite concluded yet. Either way, Morris writes, quote, the conqueror's aim was to ensure that no future army, English or Danish, would be able to support itself against him. And, as Orderic makes clear, this scorched-earth policy was brutally effective. End quote. And not to belabor the point, but such a policy also crippled the Confederacy to the point of surrender shortly before Sherman hit the South Carolina border. So there's certainly something debilitating in that, in that tactic. This next quote from Orderic Vitalis, well, could have almost word for word been written in late 1864 about Sherman's march to the sea. Orderic writes the following with disgust. Quote, As consequence, so serious a scarcity was felt in England, and so terrible a famine fell upon the humble and defenseless people, that more than 100,000 Christian folk of both sexes, young and old alike, perished of hunger, end quote. As would happen in Georgia some 794 years after William's own quote-unquote march to Durham, the only difference was that the United States had an economy that could support the movement of food and resources and even people far smoother than 11th century England. The American Deep South, for all intents and purposes, within just a matter of years, really a generation, would begin an increasingly solid recovery. 
Now, save your politics about states' rights and slavery and who was right and who was wrong. Just save it. What are we really talking about here? We're talking about human beings, people. Just because I happen to post facto support the Northern War effort in the 1860s doesn't mean I don't look at the American Southerner with pity and heartache at what Sherman's March to the Sea did to the average non-combatant. In the same way, I'm not even English, and my heart genuinely hurts for those Northumbrians during William's epic temper tantrum. But speaking of William's mood in January of 1070, it clearly went from a dangerous, steady Kilauea to a rather explosive, uncontrollable, even world-changing Krakatoa. And that's just it. William reached his limit with England. He cracked. Morris refers to this episode as, quote-unquote, one of the most notorious incidents, not only of William's reign, but of English history as a whole. Indeed, Orderic says that William, quote-unquote, made no effort to restrain his fury. Orderic is an interesting record to study, I have to say. Remember, he's an Anglo-American, the product of a Norman father and an English mother, born in England, educated in Normandy, and would become one of the great Norman chroniclers of the 12th century. He used the writings of William of Poitiers and William of Jumiege, who were both apologists of the conquerors, but he wasn't at all afraid to insert his own feelings into the narrative. According to Orderic on his deathbed, William once said of the atrocities committed in Northumbria in 1069 to 1070, William is supposedly saying, quote, I caused the deaths of thousands by starvation and war especially in Yorkshire. In mad fury, I descended on the English of the North like a raging lion and ordered that their homes and crops with all their equipment and furnishings should be burnt burnt at once and their great flocks and herds of sheep and cattle slaughtered everywhere. So I chastised a great multitude of men and women with the lash of starvation and, alas, was the cruel murderer of many thousands both young and old, of this fair people, end quote. Did he say that? Really? Well, of course not. But does it showcase Orderic's contempt for William's actions? Oh, oh, it absolutely does. Now, in the next episode, uh, again, a continuation of this one, I seek to explain the story of the Herring of the North in more far-reaching terms. A bit of an analysis, if you will. And I can't wait to get into it. 